Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So can I welcome you all to this webinar, which is going to look at sort of COVID and um, how we go forward, particularly with a focus on some of the complications we might see and how we're going to manage those, building on um, the experience of several people who are going to speak for a hopefully a short period of time, and then we'll get into some discussion and questions. Clearly, if you look at the information that's not only on the BBC News, but many of us are receiving through local sources, the level of COVID is increasing, particularly in the north of the country, Scotland and Wales, but it's coming our way. So um, we're definitely entering the second phase. And I think the big question is how big that peak is going to happen. Saw some information this morning that it's certainly climbing in the um, cities faster than it is in the rural areas, but it's something we can't be complacent at. And there's quite a lot we've learned from the phase one of this, um, which we need to implement in phase two, which will then not only help us manage these patients, but also reduce the risk to our patients and our communities. So we're going to start off with Matt, who is a consultant in the Hampshire Hospitals, who is a national lead on sepsis. Um, Matt and I have had, to, or I've had the privilege of working with Matt over a period of time. And um, what uh, he doesn't know about this area isn't worth knowing. So uh, I hope he's not going to confuse me with too much technical information. He knows my mind is quite simple. But I um, will hand over to you to start off, Matt, uh, to give us some of the background and uh, particularly the information that you've been working on nationally. Oh, thanks so for your over-generous words, uh, Nigel. I'm very, very, very honoured to speak to all of you. Um, so it's nice to meet you. Um, I'm an acute physician, but I was a GP when I was a better clinician. And um, essentially throughout COVID, I suppose I've learned iteratively on my feet because it's a relatively hitherto unknown condition that we were exploring a knowledge in. Um, one thing that came through loud and clear right from the start was of the presence of, a, of silent hypoxia. So the presence of patients who had very low oxygen levels, sometimes with an absence of breathlessness. Um, and this being a particularly serious category of patient. And uh, I saw this time and again in patients who are arriving in my emergency department, really clapped out with very low oxygen saturations and essentially with a degree of unsalvageability about them. And the what if question of what if we'd have got to them three days earlier or four days earlier when their sats were in the early 90s and not in the low 60s, could we have turned them around? And uh, in the early days, we were doing masses of rapid sequence intubations in, in, resuscitate, in the resuscitation room, dangerous emergency procedures that, you, you know, were always, nearly always associated with eventual death for the patient. Um, and what this is all pushing us towards is to consider the reframing of what is late presentations to ones that are earlier, to get to patients early enough, to give them the interventions in a hospital where appropriate, things like dexamethasone, early oxygen, proning, remdesivir, anticoagulation, Interventions that we know save lives and reduce morbidity at the right time and if done early enough. So the battle for this is not in the hospital. This is not about the number of ventilators you have. This is about how good our community systems are at picking up patients who might be sick with COVID and how aligned primary care in the community is and alive to this opportunity so that we can empower patients with pulse oximetry um, to, to empower them to know what to look out for in terms of the severe signs of COVID and present to us early enough in a way that they can be saved. We know from history 
winter is when things get really bad. So it's about planning for this eventuality and accepting where we are with now a daily positive case rate that now exceeds what we were facing during first peak. The bubble is about to burst. So from a pathway perspective, we think about how we assess COVID. It's about how we can match what we do in terms of clinical assessment as GPs, as community practitioners, as hospital or ANPs, together with COVID testing, oxygen saturation readings, biomarkers where appropriate, and respiratory pathogen panels. You know, gone are the days where everything is face to face. So the question is, if we've managed to rule out a COVID type diagnosis, then Patients can be equally sick from other pathologies. So we need to make sure our pathways are fit for purpose to manage people with other sickness equally as well as it does for COVID. And there are marvelous examples of drive-through type strategies that have been employed in the community hubs. As soon as you get through this assessment process, we've got a, a clear, you've ruled out COVID clinically, or you haven't. And if you're still in the suspected pile, and that will include people with sometimes with negative tests who we think have COVID, and nine times out of 10, we're right, um, we then are faced with a binary decision. You either come in or you continue the care at home in a COVID care at home type strategy. And then if you're going home and um, you're, you're kind of divided into a high risk and low risk, and what we know now from a high risk perspective is that it's likely to be people over the age of 50, BAME, obese, comorbidities. Those are our real high risk groups or your low risk, which is a, a larger proportion, thankfully. And then if you're in that high risk category, it's putting you onto this COVID virtual ward model. And the COVID virtual ward describes this enhanced monitoring using pulse oximetry, keeping patients at home and keeping them safe, essentially, to look out for early signs of deterioration. And if you are lower risk, then you have a more passive form of follow up with looking out for signs of deterioration, which were obviously much reduced in people who are lower risk and looking out vigilantly for patients in the high risk category to make sure that we pick up early signs of recovery. So the model revolves around aligning our pathways, developing these remote assessment models and ensuring that our virtual ward model is fit for purpose, that they have the digital supporting innovations to really in encompass safety at home with COVID and that we evaluate this at scale and Karen's going to be touching on this later. And then if we do think it's the right thing to do, how we scale and spread this rapidly at pace. So this won't reduce admissions. What it will do, it will curtail length of stay. It will reduce death, it will reduce intensive care admissions, and it'll improve flow through the emergency departments and improve flow through the hospital sectors. Because we've got to have flow to ensure that we can separate the hot from the cold. The, the pathways are pretty aligned. The emergency department, the care homes, the primary care are all singing off the same song sheet with similar lines of when to worry in terms of mild, moderate and severe oxygen saturation levels and when to inform a GP or come to hospital for an assessment. If you don't go home, you go into this virtual wall pathway. And what we found through the evidence from local evidence, actually, and look, there's 2,500 suspected COVID patients that have been transported to hospitals in our region. We know that out of those 2,500, 1,100 eventually were proved to have COVID. Very high positive rates. And out of those 1,100, we know that if your SATs are below 93% at pickup, your 30-day mortality is 28%. It's really staggeringly high, isn't it, when you compare it to other conditions? That's something we really need to, to keep close to our hearts because actually one simple recording can make all the difference here. And even if you're on the 93 to 94%, your mortality at 30 days is 13%. 
really quite high. And we found the same when you looked in emergency departments. So that 93% cutoff is pretty good because actually that predicts who the most severe patients are and the ones we really, really need to act on. And, you know, there's an increasing belief amongst primary care colleagues that actually the amber patients of the 93 to 94% ones probably also need some form of hospital type assessment if it's a sustained hypoxia. Because if someone's normally normal and they're dropping with COVID, that's a really bad sign. And there are tests that we do to try and induce hypoxia in patients with normoxia like walking them or getting them to do a sit to stand test. And there is um, early unpublished evidence that that predicts who specifically has COVID because the COVID pneumonitis causes the same refractory type hypoxia and exertional hypoxia that we saw with PCP during the height of AIDS. It's really interesting. And the odds ratio of predicting that is about 3.3. So if you have a normal oxygen level and you desaturate when you walk or when you do a sit to stand test, it is highly predictive of COVID in the emergency population. So taking that forward, the, the COVID virtual pathway is, is this in primary care. And uh, we, we'll share all the links, but those mild, moderate and severe links um, um, areas then promote certain activity that involve either a hospital assessment, being kept at home or coming into hospital urgently. We've looked at all the symptoms that COVID can produce and ranked them in terms of predictiveness of death or intensive care. And the top four are breathlessness, myalgia, chills, and severe fatigue for predicting who's gonna die or end up in intensive care. So when you're doing the phone consultation, have a think about that. The, the yellow ones are slightly less predictive and the green ones are actually safe. So if you've got a patient who says, I can't smell or taste, actually that's really not predictive of who's gonna die. It might predict who's got COVID, but it doesn't predict who's going to die. And then the care home pathway is very similar to the primary care one with the difference of the soft signs of deterioration. So that thing that's part of Restore2 in all our care and nursing home charts being the trigger for worry or concern in carers looking after patients. And then a, a similar form of, of observation checking and then communication. The virtual ward model divides up patients into high risk and low risk and then follows them up either intensively in their, if they're in the high-risk category with programmed follow-up at 2, 5, 7, 10, and 12 days after the onset of symptoms, or a safety netting strategy in those who are younger without comorbidities. And actually, increasingly, the question of whether you need oximetry in the really, really low-risk patients, because there's probably not going to be enough to give one to everyone. So the, I won't spoil the, the, the data because, Carol, uh, because Karen's going to go through that later. But so far, from the virtual ward resources perspective nationally, we've purchased around 200,000 oximeters. We've put an order in for another 150,000. The safety netting guidance is being formed. We have a written diary that gives you advice on what to do, and that was brilliantly pulled together by Matt Hamilton at Friarsgate with team, um, that, and is now national, um, and includes a diary that, that patients record their symptoms on and their oxygen saturations. He, Matt also produced an animation that is amazing that um, talks you through how to use an oximeter, what the red flags are with COVID. And um, wonderful colleagues in Slough, um, Lalitha, uh, Aya and her team have translated this into different languages and it's fantastic. Um, there are apps and we're all familiar with Acurix, which does a really good job at the moment, but they're not the only players in the market. And we do need to keep a bit of an open mind on that going forward. And then in the future, we've got brilliant minds in, in our academic institutions who are really thinking about how we pull together a proper fit for purpose interoperable digital system that pulls together primary care, secondary care and all the bits in between to ensure that we ensure patient safety going forward because there's a huge out of hours time period we need to cover here. We're not around 24 seven and neither is the hospital. 
you know, we need to think about that coverage at all hours. One of the risks going forward and one thing we needed to bottom out was whether giving everyone an oximeter was going to cause an increase in ambulance activity. And what we found is that it didn't. So um, essentially the pilot was begun in a 600,000 population from about mid-June onwards. And when we measured the CAT2 calls for all ambulances in that region, we found there was no increase in activity which is fantastic and has been useful in sort of guiding, I guess, where we put the safety netting lines in the sand for nationally going forward. In the north and mid parts of the patch, we started pilots in two community hubs and a hospital together with 100 care homes covering a rough population of 600,000 with the ambition, and we've got a bit of funding to do this, to spread this model across the whole region to cover all the PCNs with this similar sort of hot hub model. And you're going to hear what the amazing work Caroline's done here in North. And um, the question is whether this model is transplantable and whether the wisdom that Caroline and others have learned and really pioneered on is stuff we can learn from. And, and Kuldeer here has done very similar in Northwest uh, London. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from her. Um, so far through the model, we've seen about 2000 patients, um, 1800 have been discharged. Um, so far, we've looked at mortality carefully within 130 patients within the GP pilot in Winchester and the Winchester Hospital same-day emergency care virtual wards. And um, touch wood, so far, there have been zero deaths out of the 130 patients. It's quite amazing, bearing in mind the frailty of these patients and what we'd normally expect, really, with respiratory-type problems. Um, and um, there's been a really real massive improvement in non-conveyance through this pilot, safe non-conveyance. And also... Um, we have now quite widespread support to think about how we scale and spread this across the whole population. So the question is whether we can spread this model, whether it's something you'd be interested in supporting, both in terms of the COVID virtual ward, but also potentially this telemedicine and the, um, the pilot projects across our entire region. Because now, as Nigel says, the time's really gone. You know, the balloon has burst. In the north, they are full of COVID. I've got friends working in Liverpool, Manchester, and in the northeast, and it's not fun. You know, it's back to peak one kind of activity in terms of COVID admissions and intensive cares are full of COVID. And I think the same is going to come our way. So the question is whether we wait for it to happen or we do something right now to prepare for this and get our models in place so we're not chasing our tails again. We've run a national COVID forum. We have a learning network. The next one is at 3.30 this afternoon, very short notice. We have 50 to 75 people that attend regularly, 150 people on the membership. We also run an e-learning forum that has um, uh, 550 members that covers the COVID virtual ward and all cause deterioration. Um, we use a lot of social networking tools to scale and spread and also share best practice knowledge and all sorts. And there's a lot of resources on this network. Um, so if you want to join, please let me know. Um, a huge amount of this is adaptive work. The centre cannot lead on this without the front line. The front line are the pivotal area. And this is a means of making sure the front line voices are heard in the echelons of power. Because without that bi-directional flow of information, we are sunk, quite honestly. You on the front line tell the centre what's going on. That's the barometer of how we are doing in this. So the what next is... Winter is coming, essentially. We know there's a lot of respiratory badness that's going to come our way or infectious illnesses. And the question is how we plan that hot and cold model to try and reduce our cringeworthy case fatality rate during first peak down to a lower one. 
that we accept the evidence that actually the more seriously you take oxygen saturations as a country, the better your crude mortality rate, as the studies have shown. So the higher you set your line in the sand, the better you do as an entire country in terms of avoidable deaths from COVID. And the lower you put your oxygen le level, the worse you do. We need to really have adult conversations about this going forward and take it seriously to prepare and plan for what is to come and to try and get to the, the heart of the outcomes seen in more developed countries around the world. And we need to also embrace what that strategy will be. And this is the start of a 10. Um, if I had a time machine and going back, what I would think of would be the things that need to be done in planning how one implements a COVID virtual ward model. From pulling the stakeholders together and the PSCs do a fantastic job with this, bringing clinicians and commissioners together with patients and developing a strategy for implementation, funding, regional webinars such as this and ensuring we have our pathways and the resources available for all those who want to do it and are joined up with a community of practice both on a regional and local level but a national one to share and spread and help others who are addressing the same challenges. So thank you very much for listening and um, very happy to take questions at the end but I'm moving on to other speakers now. Thanks, Matt. That was great. Um, you're actually speaking to about 220 people at the moment, so uh, the message is getting out there. Um, and when you talk about the centre, I thought the centre was Wessex. I thought your map with Wessex being at the centre, everything, you know, it's not London is the centre of the country, it's Wessex. Um, okay, so um, I'd like to move quickly on to Caroline, who's a GP in North Hampshire, who's going to talk a bit about her experience. Caroline. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much. Um, I think, uh, Matt, that was a fantastic introduction as to as to what's been happening both both nationally and locally. And I think I've just been asked very briefly just to give um, an assessment really of our of our experience locally in Wessex in, in the North Hampshire region. Um, I'm a GP in Basingstoke and our experience from the first wave was that we, we came together very quickly as 11 practices, five uh, PCNs covering a population of about 200,000. Um, Basingstoke lends itself very well to this because it, it, it sits around a single hospital and I think that was that was very helpful with our initial response. Um, we, as I said we came together quite early and opened a COVID assessment centre or hot hub on the 6th of April um, and that assessment centre ran for, for 15 weeks um, and over that time we saw just over 1,700 patients um, and admitted uh, just over 100 patients. So we had a 6.4% conversion rate for, for the admission. I think it, it's fair to say that, that, you know, those are big numbers, and they were big numbers e even looking at, at, at regionally. And, and the, the reason for that is we, we made a conscious decision to cast our net fairly wide with the, uh, with the COVID assessment centre. So, so we decided to see all febrile patients and, and all respiratory patients, e even if COVID wasn't the most likely cause, there was a, there was a conscious decision made there to, to spread that net wide. Now, clearly there are pros and cons to that, and we did take that decision knowingly. Um, we, we wanted to do that really to allow our other practices in the area to, to operate in as safe a way as possible for our other patients, for our shielded patients, for our potentially immunocompromised patients. Um, it also allowed us to, to share the workload evenly and to support any practices that might be struggling. And, and I think we're going to see this coming into the second wave as well uh, with staff needing to self-isolate work from home. We wanted to, to sort of share that staffing risk. 
Um, there were definitely cons to that. We had concerns about, about patient continuity and we definitely put some safeguards in place um, by seeing all of our febrile patients or all of our patients with respiratory problems. There, there were potential risks with con continuity. Um, and also it, it was quite clinically intensive to, to staff uh, a, a unit that big. And, and those are probably some of the lessons that we've, that we've taken from it. Um, so just to give you an idea of, of the sort of spread of patients that we saw at the COVID assessment centre over those 15 weeks, um, we ran a, a drive-through element and, uh, and an inside element in the, in the consulting rooms. Um, on this graph, the, uh, the, the red bars refer to the drive-through element. Um, there is a, a direct correlation between whether it was a sunny day outside or not um, as to whether the, uh, the, the clinicians were keener to move out into the drive-through. Um, but I think it is worth saying that um, patients were very keen on the drive-through element of, of the hot hub assessment. There was a lot of nervousness in the first wave about people coming into what was perceived as a red hub. Uh, and, uh, and patients felt, uh, in the majority, very comfortable being seen in their cars. I think there will be challenges running a drive-through in a, in a winter period. But, but we, haven't just, we haven't forgotten that, that patient preference, which in many cases was for the drive-through. So moving on, this just gives us an idea of, of the weekly totals of, of patients seen. Obviously, it's very hard to predict for a second wave what those numbers will look like, but it at least gives us a, a starting point of, of, of where to work. So when we look back and, and reflect on that first wave, I, I was trying to reflect on what, what helped it to work successfully and also to identify some of the lessons. Um, we won't know really whether we've learned those lessons until we set up a, a second wave. But I think, I think the enablers really were firstly this very strong local network. I think the engagement from the PCN clinical directors was very strong and, and everybody felt comfortable and, and, and there was a, a strong degree of trust between the PCNs that allowed us to come together and, and set up at this scale. We also had a very strong relationship, primary, secondary, and that's, that's very much thanks to Matt and his team at, at the hospital and at HHFT that allowed us to link very closely with our, our emergency department colleagues, the medical team, um, and, and the, the operational team at the hospital. Um, we had strong CCG support, um, and, and from a finance point of view, we'll, we'll all be aware of how, how the first wave went, and there was an element of, of actually giving GPs the head to just make it happen. Um, and that was a hugely positive. And certainly for me, that was a new experience and one that, one that was a very positive one. We had great IT support. Um, and I think we were all helped in the first wave by primary care demand easing off to some extent. And I think it's, it, it would be fair to make that point. I think some of the challenges and the lessons that we identified when looking at, at the first wave, um, this model is certainly quite staffing intensive. We ran it quite GP heavy, and I think that's something that we have learned. Um, that put pressure on the practices. Um, I think uh, at the time that was, that was okay because we weren't having to deal with too much business as usual, but I think that will be a challenge for the coming winter um, when we think uh, normal general practice will have to continue with this running alongside. So we are going to look at a slightly different model. Um, infrastructure, running a big hot hub of this scale took a, a building from a practice uh, and that certainly put pressure on, on the rest of the practice. Um, and obviously when we're looking at a second wave, the, uh, the winter pressures, which, which weren't there in, in April, May, June, but are very much likely to be there in November, December, January. 
So just looking at, at the planning for the second wave, I'm certainly not going to repeat everything that Matt has said so eloquently, um, but I think we certainly have learned some clinical lessons and we need to factor those in for our second wave planning. We understand much more about silent hypoxia now and we need to be prepared for it. We obviously have therapeutic options now, so we need to identify those people who are, who are COVID positive. Um, in our first wave response, we weren't swabbing really because actually it didn't make a great deal of difference to, to the patient journey, whether they were positive or not in the first wave. We were treating clinically the patient in front of us. Um, and if they were hypoxic, they needed to go to hospital. If they were managing well, they didn't. So actually, we didn't feel in the first wave that it, it mattered very much to our clinical decision making, whether the patient was COVID positive or negative. That's changed now because we understand silent hypoxia. We understand that we've got other options. So we are planning to swab our patients now. And clearly, we're going to have a lower threshold for these baseline assessments for all the reasons Matt's very eloquently uh, told you. Um, and obviously now we're looking at monitoring people at home um, and we're looking at setting up virtual wards. And I'm really, I'm really looking forward to listening to Kuldir as well about her experience of virtual wards in the first round. Um, there have been a lot of enablers over the summer. These conversations certainly haven't stopped and, and COVID hasn't stopped. Um, but I think the enablers that we're looking at for, for um, the second wave, again, we've got really strong primary care network. Uh, agreement across North Hampshire and we are going to, to go back to a hot hub model on this scale um, and that will enable us to set up a, a, a virtual ward again fairly quickly we're looking at that in the next few weeks really strong collaboration a, a, across Wessex lots of learning as Matt's talked about from other national pilot sites and support from the AHSN and also I also wanted to just just thank the team at Friarsgate in Winchester who who developed all sorts of resources that all of us are sharing and using. Again, I'm not going to talk you through this flowchart because this is a very simple. It's based on the same clinical model uh, that, that, that Matt's already shown you. But I think just the idea that, that the patients can enter the hot hubs through, through primary care, through the 111 system, through CCAS, through out of hours, where we, we'll sort of all be able to refer into the hot hubs. And on that basis, very simply, the patients will be categorised into either need to go acutely to hospital into a, into a, a, a red urgent admission. They will be seen in, in an amber zone, which is likely to be a GP in emergency department model. And those are those patients who sit in, in between um, and, and really require further investigation. So we're looking at setting those up probably four across our North and Mid Hampshire patch. And then depending on whether the patients are high or low risk, as, uh, as Matt's already explained, they will enter the virtual ward or be, be sort of more passively monitored at home. We'll talk about this a little bit in the, in the Q&A, but the, uh, the, the virtual ward setup that we're looking at will be, will be led by a band six, seven, a nurse, uh, band seven slash eight, a nurse, sorry. Um, and I think re referrals into this pathway ideally will be done through EMIS, which is the operating system that we will be looking at. But the most important thing for us is that, is that it can be accessed by, by all of the players in the, in, in the network. So clearly by the hot hubs and primary care, but also be able to be accessed possibly from the emergency departments at the front door, by our out of hours colleagues, potentially by patients being discharged or by the teams discharging patients from hospital. And also we're having conversations with SCAS using the 111 and, and, and CCAS elements to be able to refer into these virtual wards. And I think that's the idea is that, is that somebody can have oversight and make sure that none of, however patients are accessing care, 
um, they they are they are not left at home alone without without somebody monitoring them. Um, we're trying to keep it as simple as we can. Um, patients will be given a pack when they're entered into the virtual ward containing a pulse oximeter, an instruction leaflet, the remote monitoring diary, and also the return envelope. Um, I'll show you that just, just very briefly, but again, Matt Hamilton and his team have done a, a fantastic sort of um, clip on YouTube as, as to how that works and what it looks like. There'll also be, we're going to use the Accurix COVID remote monitoring flurry, and, and that can be set up so that patients are automatically sent a text um, on the days that Matt talked about. Um, and um, again, if patients are high risk, we might choose to do that daily. That can be based on a clinical judgment, but there's an automated text sent out and the patients will reply and that, that links straight into EMIS. And then the person who's overseeing the virtual ward will be able to check in EMIS, see what the OBS are, identify any deterioration, if necessary, pull them back into the hot hubs, or if they're concerned they're deteriorating, bring them back into the AMBER site. Um, and obviously returned after 14 days. Matt's already shown you these, but these are some of the fantastic resources that we've, that we've got to help patients understand. Anyone, patients who don't have access to Accurix through mobiles, um, again, will be contacted by phone so that they, we're, we're ensuring good access for, for, for all of our patients, um, not, not just those who are, who are more digitally savvy. This gives an idea of what the, the Accurix templates look like, um, and all of the uh, primary care colleagues will be very familiar with using this. So I think I would like to hand back to uh, Nigel. I think we're going to hear from Kuldir next and then we'll take questions at the end. Thank you very much, Caroline. Very interesting, very informative. Um, Kuldir, would you like to... Uh, yep. Uh, can I thank you very much for coming and joining us today and sharing your experience. Uh, we often think London is a bit different from elsewhere and you certainly had very high levels of COVID, higher than we experienced in many of our areas. So you have huge experience of seeing these patients, which um, this is coming to us shortly. So uh, over to you. Thank you. Um, so for what it's worth, you'll notice from my qualifications, my first qualification was actually in Southampton. So I'm actually very much um, understand Wessex because did my training there and for what it's worth my Welcome daughter. Welcome home then, Kadir. Sorry? Welcome home. Oh, thank you. So, um, not uh, it's my absolutely my second home, and equally for what it's worth, as a family, it's, it still continues to be our second home. My daughter did a medical training there, and my nephew's there now as we speak. So, um, even though you've alluded to London, I've got connections, very strong connections with Wessex. But I think the important message I'm trying to convey is actually we're we're all GPs, irrespective of where we are in the country, and we're all dealing with the same issues. So, thank you for this opportunity. So what I will do is just reflect on our lessons learnt, but equally um, in relation to the, where we started off in Hillington, but a lot of what we've touched on is being shared through the National Deterioration Forum, as Matt has alluded to. Equally, it's being shared through the NHS acts and digital platforms as well. So we're, we're, because at the end of the day, as um, Caroline's already alluded to, we're using IT tools to help us, and it's about making sure we all help each other. And like yourselves, um, right in the beginning, when we started in the first wave, at that moment in time, none of us knew what COVID was. None of us still do truly know what COVID is because it's still something that's evolving. At that moment in time, we only had the information that was available to us internationally. And, and, and the big ask of all of us was, how can we in primary care 
identify patients sooner rather than later and how can we assist the bigger system equally at that moment in time how do we um, scale up very quickly because the way we were all working was very different we went from being virtually 80% face-to-face to to 80% virtual and all the new tools were introduced and how do we maximize so it was a lot about using the tools that we have Um, the reason I'm showing you this dashboard is this is our local dashboard that we've built up in relation to the informatics but equally you will have all done something similar locally the bottom line is if we don't code the information we don't capture the information we don't know what's going on so that's always been my key message um, being one of the clinical IT needs is equally um, on the back of that you then get a better understanding what demographics being affected what we did in our local area was put down use the suspected code for COVID at that moment in time and obviously we've had the opportunity of more SNOMED codes being made available we also started identifying the ethnic groups as well as other comorbidities or I found we found very interesting enough that BMI was key it isn't 28 it's 25 is what you need to look at but as Matt will allude to later on and that's helped to inform what the national um, studies will be looking at. Having said all of that, in northwest London, even though Hillington covers a patient population of 300,000, in northwest London we cover a patient population of nearly 2.5 million, and we've got two key IT systems. And what we did very early on was say, okay, we need to align the coding for System 1 and EMIS across both our patches, so we actually say apples are apples, not apples are oranges. For those who are familiar with coding will understand what I've been getting at. But it's really key that we then understood what was going on in our system. As uh, we didn't have SNOMED codes back then for COVID, no surprises there, but actually we then used proxy codes and, and tried to uh, align a systematic way of capturing the information. What we, we also wanted to do was make it very clinically safe. So if other areas were, de- uh, other um, members of the team were delegated duties, then at least we were assured that the right information was being captured. At the same time, we also looked at using an app for those patients that wanted to use an app and we were introduced to the Metapad or Humor group and it was a, we went through very uh, rigorous clinical safety case review as well as hazard log when we put all of this together and I'll touch on that in a minute. But again, the key point here is, is about using the tools that suit the patients best and the most important message there is it, it didn't mean that if a patient didn't have a smartphone, they were excluded. Actually, everybody was included. The most basic um, piece of communication was obviously making sure you had telephone access to the patient and that they didn't live alone. So what do we find? As a part of our clinical safety review, in the first two hubs we had within Hillingdon and Central CCG, we looked, did a case-to-case um, analysis on every single patient that was entered because obviously the first ask of all of us was, is this actually really safe for primary care to look at? and to manage within the community setting. And and in the initial groups, I looked at 50 in Hillington, after we looked at um, 35 in Central, we had similar findings. We looked at the patient demographic, the ethnicity, as well as was there other information that was coming through? Because at that moment in time, the only official guidance we had was coming through centrally, but equally that was almost changing at some point on almost a daily basis, as I'm sure those at the frontline world may recall. Uh, let alone weekly basis, and it was a question of what information um, do we need to understand. Very early on, uh, we identified that actually a significant number of patients um, had no other pre-existing comorbidities. So it's about the fluidity of understanding. Actually, if you're suspecting query COVID, refer them in and we can monitor them. Equally, we found, um, as we have found over time, a number of patients had other comorbidities like respiratory conditions or cardiovascular conditions 
conditions. But the purpose of me showing you this slide is, is primarily to say, well, actually, depending on the age demographic, we managed to cover the whole patient population. The older patients obviously preferred the telephone, the younger patients, the Medipad, uh, which was a digital app. Um, but equally, what we also found in relation to the comorbidities is over time, we all came up with our shielded list and which patients needed to be on the shielded list. And actually, it was almost a 50-50 split in relation to those patients that were on the shielded list and those that had no other pre-existing illness or, or conditions that we were aware of at that moment in time. Um, similar findings in Central. The most important thing, as Caroline has already alluded to, is, is that actually patients found this really, really helpful. And it was this dilemma that at that moment in time, um, it was about a lot of patients were getting to the point of saying they didn't want to go near a hospital, they didn't want to go into hospital. We were lucky if they were, would even come near a primary care um, contact centre. But the important thing was that having some form of monitoring did make a difference. But I'll come on to that in a minute as well. One of the initial um, reflections I had was that when I looked at detail in relation to 30 key cases, it was a question to see, are there any other patterns emerging as to what is the advice coming through from the central and can we feed it back up? Well, obviously, as we all know from our own personal experiences, we were picking up different degrees of uh, different types of heart traits as one of the parameters in relation to, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure those who are very much involved with heart tops will have picked up, they picked up patients with atrial fibrillation, for example, new onset, or even bradycardic episodes, and obviously over time more information has come through about cardiac arrhythmias. Equally, I've already fed back repeatedly that I've noticed, even though the national guidance indicated looking out for high temperatures, we were picking up a number of patients who had very low temperatures. Um, and again, that kind of fits in with part of some of the clinical pictures they were saying where they notice fatigue or chills and make sure that prompts you to check on what the thermal, uh, individual's um, temperature is. The reason it was a smaller number of cases um, where we did have the temperatures was understandably not every patient has a thermometer but it goes back to what's in their rescue pack. One of the initial findings we also found was looking at the PO2 readings, even though the national guidance with respect at that moment I was kind of indicating 93, uh, we were finding that a lot of patients were being picked up on slight, uh, even at levels of 95 and being monitored. And again, I'm sure Matt will reflect on where we've managed to get, go with that in relation to the national study. Um, this was, again, just another reflection of acting. The majority of patients actually had very low temperature. So it goes back to, um, I'm sure some of you may recall, even before the guidance changed as to which patients needed to be seen, um, I recall seeing a patient where I thought there was something wrong with my thermometer. Well, actually, looking back, he probably had COVID. It wasn't the thermometer that was wrong. He generally had a low temperature. So just be mindful of that personal reflection. Um, so as I indicated, we did a very much detailed end-to-end -end analysis on those patients on both arms of the uh, virtual ward, and it was about double-checking on clinical data um, entry, but also were there other symptoms being identified. As I mentioned, you know, very early on, we were mostly told about the respiratory side of COVID-19, but information was just beginning to emerge around um, other uh, diseases associated with COVID. And again, we picked up on things like, as, you, as people have reflected, fatigue, breathlessness, even atypical swelling. A number of patients may have presented with a DVT. The, the information about thromboembolic elements of COVID-19 have subsequently emerged. So it's about making remembering it's a multi-system condition. Equally importantly to re-emphasize, and again, this might be something we need to prepare for in wave two, a lot of patients would not go near a hospital. 
So again, it at least enabled you to um, carry on monitoring those patients, checking how they were. And the interventions I've indicated are actually, even if you patients were started on antibiotics, whether they had investigations, um, whether they had inhalers, all of those were marked as interventions. And equally, a critical intervention was just reminding people to rest. It's, it can be quite surprising that the minute they're on a hospital ward and a hospital bed, they will physically rest. But if they're at home, they were out doing the gardening and then wondering why they were desaturating their drone in the day. In the day. But very simple interventions can make a difference. As a rough rule, we found out almost between half to two-thirds of the patients thereby had some form of intervention while they were being monitored. I subsequently looked at a further 200 total cases of those patients that have been on the virtual. The first reflection was when we were very much in the peak of the first wave. And this is subsequently as the case loads have been ongoing up to um, the middle of August. And again, it's just another reflection that at some moment in time, those patients, and these were primarily patients that were in the moderate category, had a, a, a drop in their saturations at some point of monitoring, as well as temperatures. So these are just a, a couple of case um, examples um, and which and these slides will be shared, but it's just to remind people that a patient can deteriorate over a course of a day. And it's about how do you practically ensure that you have some form of monitoring occurring, but actually managing that with the workforce that we have in place. But this particular case where it was a question of also the patient ended up having a form of intervention within the hospital, which wasn't full ventilation, and she subsequently went home. Um, and this is another example where this patient was monitored through the app version of the virtual ward, um, and it is about um, enabling her to carry on being monitored. She deteriorated what, even in the out-of-hour setting, but because she knew what to do as part of the safety netting, she subsequently went into hospital was diagnosed as having COVID-19 based on her x-ray given supportive treatment and then discharged home. The important message here is that now that we have got testing, it's great, but do remember negative swab does not exclude COVID and do remember about clinical acumen and clinical judgment and if you need to monitor the patients. And interesting enough, in this particular lady, she subsequently went on to have a, a positive antibody test. We all know about the timeline about the antibody testing as well. Um, so as a rough rule, this was just to give you an idea of the volumes that were coming through to Hillington. That this was at the, in the summer when the numbers were beginning to go down. Uh, but as a, as a rough indication, almost a thousand patients had been referred to the hot hub. Of those, um, uh, equally 200 have been referred to the 111 service. So it's again a question of making sure you align your directory of service to your hot hub and make sure it's absolutely populated on. Um, and in our local areas, as I've indicated, we've got System 1 and EMIS. In relation to the EMIS um, working, it was the hub is, is, is the, the GP can book directly into the hub through cross-organizational booking. Um, and likewise, the ones can now do that through their method as well. Um, and it's just trying to make it as seamless as possible. But it also gives you an indication of how many patients were uh, monitored and how many went on the telephone arm as opposed to the metapad arm. But again, we found very similarly, uh, a number did go to A&E and some of those patients were admitted, but fingers crossed up to that moment in time, we've had no reported patient deaths whilst they were being monitored on the virtual ward.
So the key question is, is it safe and can it be done? The most important message here that I want to convey is our lesson has been learning that this is primarily in relation to pre-hospital care. So I always say it's about the journey of as the patient is deteriorating and how can we then at least get them into the system sooner rather than later? And can it be done? The, it, equally, we've learned very quickly within the first couple of weeks, it doesn't have to be completely GP-led, but it has to be GP oversight is key. Um, and you can train up other members of the staff to be able to do the, the touch point calls. Safety netting at the onboarding and the exiting was key, but we also did safety net advice at every single point of contact, and that was clearly documented. Um, and, again, and again, it's just a, a, a few reminders about how you align it to the rest of the system, whether you've got testing in your local hubs, and which we have to, in our local hub now. Um, so interesting enough, before I joined this call, we just did a call with the respiratory group um, in Northwest London, the CRG. But again, it's a question of how do we look at this as a system-wide approach? And it's not just relevant to Northwest London, it's relevant everywhere. If you've got escalator care clinic, um, standard operating procedures, is are you looking just primarily respiratory pathway? We're now going to winter pressures. How do you align that going forward? What are the resources? But equally, don't completely exclude um, clinical um, judgment in relation to is does this patient have COVID? For example, a patient may find, as Matt's already alluded to, if may you have myalgia, fatigue, slight breathlessness and a low temperature, but actually that doesn't ex exclude them to being referred to the hot hub for an assessment. Um, and this is a very much similar to, well, it, it is most of Matt's slides that is where I've used them in other settings, where why are we doing this? We have found that obviously if a patient goes into hospital with saturations of 93% or less, they, the likelihood of them being fully ventilated is high. Very early on, we all had experiences, whether it's through people we know, loved ones, colleagues we work with or patients, if that happened, you had either a one in two or one in four chance, as I say, of walking out, but we're trying to absolutely improve those odds for everyone. A couple of minutes, Carl, there. Yeah. Uh, so these are, like I said, very similar. So I think the last point was, um, do you remember about oximeters, thermometers, how do you enable three times a day contact points? Absolutely keep it as a closed loop system is what I normally say, making sure you absolutely safety net at every single point of contact. And consider aligning it in relation to your pillar two and pillar four results coming through and be prepared for winter. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, can we quickly move on to Karen, who I think uh, has got the unenviable job of trying to pull all that together and make some local points as well. Karen. Okay, thank you. I'm going to be really quick, so I want us to be able to have a bit more time. I just want to um, just talk about the evaluation that's been going on. So we've had two um, evaluation teams working on all of the sites through um, England. Uh, one, and I'm just going to show you the NIHR um, findings. Matt, if you just move on, I'm just going to rapidly move on. Um, 
So this was a, 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 a set of um, researchers from UCL partners who've been working on this, who, who evaluated the pre-hospital and the post-hospital um, models for um, evaluation of patients. So there's definitely a primary care model. We've heard a lot from Kildare and Caroline about that, but equally well across many areas in, in, the, in England, there've been a mixture of secondary care, outreach, step down, ED, um, and so on. And so this really is a system um, response and the evaluation covered all of those um, areas. The next slide, please. And these were the expected outcomes as identified by the sites. This is all about minimizing patient mortality. And you'll have seen some of you in the BMJ, uh, the article this week, which talked about how um, primary care has really been excluded from much of this um, analysis and, and care of patients uh, in the community. But identifying earlier, having a, a clear escalation route and making sure that this was good for patients and staff. And again, that there are both types of models that have been analysed. Next slide, please. Just want to hook out one, one uh, line in this, which was also seen in the Imperial. The other people who evaluated have been Imperial, and, and these are very, this is, you're getting the first sight of this. But I just want to bring you down to the second um, table below, which talks about, um, uh, no, sorry, the first table, the deaths data, which shows that the, of the percentage of patient monitored, there was a very low death rate, 1.1, and in the imperial data, it was very similar, 1.8% COVID-related deaths. So that's a really marked difference to the, what, what we're seeing in, in terms of the patients who were, who were dying. Um, obviously, they were, they were very sick people in the early stages of the pandemic, but this looks like these are really, um, it's a safe service. It doesn't incur extra harm by doing this evaluation. And the next slide, please, these are just two slides were looking at the lessons learned so just want to whiz through these Nigel one size doesn't fit all support from commissioners is needed um, lots of people set these services up really quickly in the first wave and it takes weeks to set them up not months there's a real uh, ability to switch things on um, quickly and as Matt said we've we've got Pulse oximeters now being distributed widely across England. You just need a plan, a plan to put in place, and we're facilitating the distribution of those oximeters. There, were, there are some um, uh, questions around the, the staffing model. Different places have used different staffing models, but we think that it can be set up with clinical oversight, but use of um, nurses and, and um, uh, HCAs in, in some, uh, in some uh, situations to try and make sure that we help patients. We need clear criteria. I think we've got that. I think Matt's done an amazing job. The recommendations around the oxygen saturation guidelines that you've just seen are, are seem to be right. So I'd really credit Matt fantastically for the work he's done in, in ensuring that, 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 he got, that we got that right. Um, so clear-cut referral pathways are key, important to translate into different languages. I think there's a debate about how we can get test and trace data uh, and testing as part of the hot hubs. That's a wider discussion, but we need to be prepared for that and then think about how we can scale up and down through the, the pandemics. Next slide, please, is the last one, which is um, uh, uh, in terms of the monitoring. Um, we're seeing... Um, that there is a significantly reduced risk to staff. We need to start thinking about that. App-based models are not for everybody. Uh, it's, we've had equally good response by looking at paper and as we've described, Acuix and, and through the GPIT systems. We need to have a special focus on those who can't access care in the normal way. 
um, and uh, an increase an increased database an increased research really needs to needs to be taken forward and I'm just reading through my notes from Imperial again the message came through really loud and clear the risk is really increased where the SATs are below 95%, particularly over 50s with those with one more long-term conditions. Obesity appears to be significantly important, um, but, but and a 14-day stay on a virtual ward is, is the maximum that probably that is needed. You don't need more than that. And I'm going to end there, Nigel. Thanks very much, Karen. I think, uh, may I say that, um, thank you very much for the presentations. It's, it's a bit mind-blowing and a bit um, challenging to get your head around that if you take uh, us moving from a, a normal day in general practice to what is being suggested. So let me, um, I'll, I'll start with you, Karen, but the others please chip in. How, how do PCNs or practices get from where they are now to the sort of model you're talking about? Who do they need to talk to and get involved? And I think, you know, one of the questions in the Q&A box is, I think many practices aren't aware or, or they may have read about these mysterious pulse oximeters that, Matt's manufacturing in his uh, shed at the bottom of the garden and distributing them widely. Where, how do they get hold of them? Okay, so the first question about who to talk to, I think, um, first of all, is, is other PCN CDs. Um, the second is commissioners. Um, the third is, I do think this needs to be a system response. So we need to make sure that we have an integrated response across urgent care. This is not just workload in general practice going forward to be sustainable. This needs to include one 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 out of hours, acute trusts, as well as partnerships uh, around the PCNs. And, and certainly that's where it's gonna um, work best and, and that's clear. The second question about um, pulse oximeters is, uh, we, we are, uh, we've distributed a certain number of oximeters already to the first wave pilot sites. We've got a community of practice that's been running um, all summer um, to, to try and make sure that we share good practice. Um, and there, there will be a, a plan hopefully in place within this week to get the rest of the oximeters starting to be distributed down to CCGs. But if you let me know, if you've got a plan in place ready to go and let me know, we'll facilitate uh, a, number of facil a, a number of oximeters to come your way. They're based on a, a, an approximate number of 30 oximeters per average size, 8,000 size practice. And that's, that will be the first drop. It's really important we get them back and recycle them through. You can sterilize them, reuse them. So there will be an attrition rate but that's where we're starting now and i mean clearly um you need there's no point just having the pulse oximeters delivered to a practice and not knowing what to do with them so matt you've you've responded in the box do you want, do you want to just clarify that yes yes of course there is an email address essentially england.home at nhs.net that i've tried to put in the chat bar and also the answer section and basically CCGs should email with a request for numbers of oximeters per GP practice in the particular region. The rough ballpark figure is 30 oximeters per practice. That was what the 210,000 calculation was based on. Um, so that's what you should be, um, should be, should, should come your way essentially. And I would, I would certainly urge you to get your request in early because um, there's going to be a real flurry and uh, you know, we may run out. Um, can I ask you, Caroline, how, how difficult or how easy was it to set up the service? I mean, it looked like a, a monumental task, but, you know, watching how general practice and, and other parts of the system transformed in, you know, breakneck speed when we removed the barriers and allowed the clinicians to drive it. Um, how, how difficult did you find it? And I, I don't want to say it was easy because that would underplay the hard work of a, of a lot of people. Um, but actually when we were given the go ahead and just 
told, this is what we need, go and make it happen. Uh, it, it happened in about a week, yeah, and, and, and that's probably no exaggeration. Um, you know, I was surrounded by a fantastic team uh, operationally. Um, it was led by an, an, an ANP who was fantastic. Um, and I think once everyone started putting together, actually, we, we were able to set it up really quite quickly. It was a very positive experience and, and one I was really, I felt very grateful to be part of. So it's leadership, getting buy-in, clear clear um, aims and objectives that you're going to do and people can see the benefits and then they'll contribute. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And Kuldeer, is that your experience in London as well? Once you, once you had the vision and the leadership, you got people's buy-in, you got the support of practices as well as others? Yeah, so, so basically we went from inception because obviously we had the app to take into consideration and sort out all the governance around that and as well as all the safety pathways. But it, once we did that, that in itself actually, if you think about IC programs, they normally take about 12 to 18 months to fully mobilize. We did that from inception to putting the first patient on board within four weeks. But when we then uh, cascaded it to neighboring CCGs, if, for example, I just cascaded to another EMIS practice, I, or EMIS PCN or organization, I just shared everything I had, which meant they can mobilize within four days. So I absolutely echo what Caroline's saying. But I think the most important thing is it isn't about waiting for tools to come into being. You use what you have. Um, so I think um, it should hopefully, and a lot of that information we have already shared. Good training from Southampton, I think. There. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Holistic care. <laughs> right, we're running out of time. So I'm just going to go through each of the panel and ask them for some final reflections. So um, I'll, I'll start off with you, Caldera, as you're um, unmuted. Any, any final reflections? Um, I, I think that, that it's, it's not being afraid to do it. Um, and um, I think that the, the first thing we were all scared of, even as a GP, is where do I see this patient is clinical safety is first. And I always remember the ABC of resuscitation. Actually, you don't go somewhere which is unsafe. So the primarily is keeping your cold centers cold, nominate one hot center, and then just work together. Thank you. Caroline, any last reflections? It's hard to follow that really because I, I totally agree with with all of that. I think the only thing I would add is is communication. Um, it, it's been fantastic across the region to to create so many new links, um, but also to maintain those new links over the last few months. And and actually, it, it really shows when when primary care, secondary care, community care, and our, and our SCAS colleagues can work together. Um, really, anything's possible. Good, Matt. Final reflections? Um, just just the, the great privilege. It's It's been working with everyone in the team. Um, it, it's rare you get these moments in life where you're working with a, a really talented group of individuals who have a common vision and a common aim, an aligned aim. And um, I don't think there's many places on earth like Wessex, quite honestly, for that. It happens all the time so, in Wessex, Matt. You know, <laughs> so I think it's the right place to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Karen, final reflections? Yeah, finally, just we need to get ready now. I mean, there's no time to wait now. We're, we're seeing the cases coming. So please don't wait for another three or four weeks. Please get on now and start having the conversations uh, pretty well imminently, please. Thanks. So, so I think this has been really helpful. We'll make the recording available. But what I would quite like is perhaps in four to six weeks time, invite the panel back. Because I think once practices start setting up, your, clearly your experience and knowledge will be really valuable um, 
And I think as people move down this, there'll be lots more questions come. I think we could continue having this discussion for another hour without any problem at all. But I know people have got busy days and uh, um, people need to go back to surgery and um, Matt needs to speak to all sorts of important people nationally. So uh, we'll um, end now. And thank you very much to the panel and thank you for your time. And thank you actually for all you're doing for our practices and our patients and our communities. It, it really is um, inspiring to, to hear about it. Um, thank you very much um, and have a good day. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.